Okay, so this poem is called You Could. I stood in the middle of my kitchen eating butter. It was 11 a.m. on an overcast morning. I was wearing, well, let's not worry about what I was wearing. I don't make a habit of this. I'd never done it before, and it wasn't a whole stick, though a good half inch popped it in and let it melt into the flesh under my tongue, the place where you'd insert nitroglycerin if that's what you needed. I won't describe the taste. You'll have to try it for yourself. Perhaps when you're thinking about goals, that would be a good time to let some butter have a ride on your tongue or stick a thumb in a bowl of icing scarf a pie with no hands like a wolf. Whatever pulls you in from or shoves you out on the ledge you might need to come in from or go out on. You don't have to climb Mount Everest unless you find yourself in front of it and can't come away. Unless something's calling you to do something your friends wouldn't understand in a million years. I don't understand butter. I know it comes from cows who've given so much for so long, but it's a person I picture, the first to try it. Others in the tribe discarded the floating globules, but this one wanted to taste the world, the same world that has us so worried and confused. You could do it. And afterwards, write it down. Today was overcast. I put on a full slip just because. Oh, and I ate butter. Incredible. Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 229. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is Diana Getch. Diana is an American poet and essayist, author of eight poetry collections and the acclaimed memoir, This Body I Wore, which is a wonderful read. I really recommend everybody check that out. She was a winner of the 2017 Rattle Chapbook Prize for her chapbook in America, which was just a thrill to publish, too. Uh, her works appear in The New Yorker, Poetry, The Gettysburg Review, all sorts of the best places that publish poetry uh, in the world. Uh, her honors include fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, the New York Foundation of the Arts, and the Grace Paley Teaching Fellowship at the New School. And uh, here she is, Diana Getch. Hey, Diana, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Wonderful to join you on the Rattlecast. <laughs> yeah, it's so great to have you here. I mean, I, I've been a fan of your work for such a long time. Um, it's such, um, I mean, you know, there's such, such sort of clarity and um and honesty and then you know some wit there's this whole bunch of things going on in your poems all the time and i just love getting a chance to look back and reading through in america which is a great book and this new memoir that you put out last year um what is your goal what are you trying to do with poetry um oh god i think i think each poem has its own kind of story and one of the things i love about the practice of poetry is it's so situational I mean, there are no rules for art. It's whatever gets the job done. And, you know, you just try this and try that, and you're just looking for maximum emotional effect. Um, I think on, on more poems than any, I have an aesthetic a little like a bank robbery. You know, on the one hand, there's the efficiency. You get in, you do the job, and you get out. You know, as, as the great teacher William Packard talked about certain poems. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is you see what you can get away with. 
measured against what you cannot possibly get away with. I mean, can I get away with a first line in this day and age? You know, I have always been fond of the name Karen. Like, okay, right away, you know, I'm I'm raising the bar. This dive is going to have a, a bit of a degree difficulty. Let's have some fun with it. Yeah, well, there's an element of, of fun to it, too, of trying to amuse yourself as you push deeper into the issues you're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, playfulness seems to be a part of your poetry, too. Even as you touch on serious topics, it seems like something that you really care about doing is, is entertaining yourself as you go along. Um, is, is that something that you focus on, and, you know, amusing yeah, yeah. yourself as you write? Yeah, very much so. And I'm glad you're saying that. I mean, even in a serious topic, play is it really matters in the sense of space, humor in the sense of space, in the sense of having perspective. And, you know, even when, especially when you have a, a, tropic of, a topic of like trauma, uh, dead seriousness, you better be able to walk around it and look in many ways so you don't commit this crime of earnestness. And, you know, you only make the obvious move, which which often is not the best move. Mm-hmm. There's there's a Frost quote uh, from, I think it's called Two Tramps in Mud Time, perhaps you know this, where he says at one point, I'll play for mortal stakes. <laughs> and, you know, it's a great artist poetica, playing for mortal stakes. And, you know, people get the mortal stakes part of poets because we're supposed to be so serious and so forth. But often poets themselves forget about the play part of that and how important that is and how many ways there are to play. Uh, let's hear another poem, Diana. Sure. Um, let's see what I have set up here. Here's a poem called Elton John. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I read this poem uh, for, for, for people in the audience who think who think poems have to rhyme, and I might not be able to do it. <laughs> it's like, it's like let's, get, let's put that thing to bed here. <laughs> but it's also fun to rhyme as well. Elton John. I remember when he was the measure of cool for a couple of years back in junior high school. We were all chanting, your sister looks cute in her braces and boots. And nobody knew that he wasn't dreaming of anyone's sister. And maybe that's why his lyricist, Mr. Bernie Taupin, wrote lines so deranged. I mean, what could possibly be more strange than saying goodbye to Yellow Brick Road so you could go hunting the horny black toad unless it's craw rockin' on Crocodile Rock unless it was Elton donning a frock. But that had to wait about 10 more years when things got a little bit safer for queers. Meantime, he hid behind rose-colored glasses while we sang his hits in our seventh grade classes, not knowing why we liked what we did. Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kid. And that was Elton John. Now, the first poem we're reading tonight from In America, the chapbook by Diana Getch that won the uh, 2017 Rattle Chapbook Prize. 
Um, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, a poem from a poet that doesn't usually do rhyme very much to end rhyme, you know, a full poem in, in rhyme couplets. How often do you do that? And, and do you have, how much do you pay attention to internal rhyme when you're writing free verse? I mean, that's the thing, that's the thing you get a lot from people, um, responding to poems. They say, well, it's not poetry unless it rhymes. And you have to say, well, if you can't hear the music in that, it's not really our fault that you can't hear the music when the music is right there apparent in so many poems, because there's so many. Yeah different kinds of varieties of rhyme and rhythm that repeat. Um, so, so do you, uh, how much do you write in rhyme and, and how much do you pay attention to the music when you're not rhyming? Uh, all the time, all the time. I mean, I edit with my ears. Um, I rhyme more than people might suspect. Um, I do it all the time, uh, to stay in shape. I do it, you know, as exercises and there's more blank verse just just uh, iambic pentameter unrhymed in my poems that I ever point out than people normally suspect. There's a lot of blank, blank verse, just that attention to meter and rhyme and rhythm. Um, so the answer is a lot. Um, you know, when I teach, I, I, I mentioned William Packard before, one of the great teachers. I, I view him as one of my root gurus, uh, you know, when, when I was coming up. And he um he has a teaching i call the three talents he just calls it um uh image voice and sound as the three areas of literary technique like any kind of any kind of thing you can try on the page like a metaphor well that goes right into the image bucket you know and you know use of the senses description that's all image and some people are image poets like sharon olds totally an image poet some people are sound poets, you know, like Dylan Thomas, although he's pretty good at images. Uh, and then some people are voice poets. I just mentioned Patricia Smith and, you know, Cornelius Eady and Tim Siebels. These are voice poets. That's their engine, you know. And I, a lot of people just stay with the one home talent. And that's the other thing Packard says is you're all born with one of these, you know, and the other two you have to train in. But I don't see a lot of others training in the other two. And I might not be a sound poet. I'm not sure. I'm probably an image poet. That's probably my home talent. But I like to train. I like to train in all three talents. I just think um, it's good. It's good to do. And um, it gives me more range, allows me to go after more things. But when it comes to editing, always with the ears, it's always, you know, I, I hear the lumps. You know, and I love the Duke Ellington dictum, you know, if it sounds good, it is good, you know, and if it's lumpy, there's no way it's wise. It, it can't possibly be, you know, meaningful or as impactful as if it's, you know, uh, figured out in terms of the sound. Yeah, it's so interesting how that works. It, it, it's almost like we have this sense that we don't talk about or really understand, which is a sense for truthfulness or authenticity. And there's something to do with the music making the authentic. So when you read submissions, I, I know you've done, uh, you've judged contests and things like that before. When you read submissions, you just hear sort of the authenticity in a voice, like immediately. It's like the, the, the best poems just sort of suddenly emerge out of the background on their own, you know? And there's something that you, it feels like you're just listening to that music of truth, whatever it is, whatever strange thing that means. And then, you know, 20 years of doing this, I have no idea what that actually is, but it's something. Um, and, and you mentioned, um, you know, having a poem that can change the room. 
um, you know, when you're doing a reading and, I, and it feels like that has something to do with it. Uh, would you say, I mean, is it some, like, like when the audience hears that music of truth, is that when you turn a room and when you're not in a room, how do you figure out if your poem's doing that? You know, I mean, I don't know if you, you know, read every poem at an open mic or a reading before you publish it. I doubt it at this point. So, so how do you know, um, when your poems have, have hit that mark? I do have to find a way of, 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 you know, get the, get this on the test track in, in, in one way or another. Sometimes uh, I'll, I'll read it uh, into, you know, like a computer audio program. I'll just read it and record it and then hear it back. And uh, sometimes I can hear the lumps in it, you know, that way, um, you know, I'll show it to people, you know, writing friends. We all we all do that um, in one way or another, I think. Um, but, you know, the poems that change the room, there are a lot of poets who want a lot of accolades and I will not mention names because I'm about to say, but they can't change a room with a poem. I, it's very rare to see a poet and a poem that can do that. It's really rare and it should be. Mm -hmm. you know, one of my other gurus, Stephen Dunn, he used to tell a workshop even before he's ever seen their writing. He used to say a good poem is highly unlikely. You know, and it's wonderful to at least quietly, modestly, you know, with yourself. Nobody sees this, but you just have a standard, you know, that keeps that in mind. Um, I think sound is probably key to changing a room because I think in all effective poems, people are aware of its, its urgency. You know, it's like the great big fender of one of those old GM cars. It's like the, the fender is a little in the future. <laughs> you know, it's like it's out front. <laughs> the hood ornament gets you. <laughs> you don't know what this is, but it's got to be something. Um, and there's an urgency we sense in a poem before we even know what it means. It just feels right. It just feels like it matters. Um, and it happens with all kinds of different poems. It's just it just kind of makes a case for itself sonically with some kind of urgency. Would you um, say, so go ahead. Would you say as a writer that when you're writing, you're chasing the urgency? Is like that what you're listening for as you're pushing through a poem or, or a or prose in the case of the memoir? Chasing the urgency. It's interesting. I mean, usually when I start a poem, there's some kind of critical mass telling me that what I'm feeling is probably it's ending. It's probably the fact that it can have an ending, but I don't know what that is yet. It's a little like falling in love. You fall in love with a person in that moment, you're taking in a ton of information, like with your body, but you might not know for five years what that thing was. <laughs> and, and it might be really hard, you know, but, but you just take it in. Um, so yeah, I sense that I got a better batting average in terms of, you know, which sparks turn out to be poems and I don't go down so many dead ends because I just have a sense there's something alive here and I'm so ready to call something uninteresting and boring that I kind of trust when even I like it because I don't like anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think as it should be, I think we have this uh, conception that we should love every poem we read. You know, as, a, as poets, we think like poems are great, and they should all be great. If you open up a book, every poem's going to be great. If you open up a magazine, you know, if you don't like a certain poem, there's something wrong. You know, with Rattle, if there's a poem of the day, and like, I didn't like it. 
you know, and that's really just not how it works. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm trying when I'm, you know, putting a magazine together and I'm sure you're thinking the same way in a collection. Um, you know, you're trying, I wish I want there to be, um, you know, somebody for every poem. You know, I want that to be a poem that moves somebody. But the idea that every single poem is going to be the poem that really means something to everybody is sort of just not even realistic at all. And, you know, there's that that Randall Geraldine I was thinking of about the you know poets stand out in the lightning storm. You know, when a good poet gets struck by lightning once and a great one twice, or however, you know, paraphrasing, but however he said that. And, um, you know, there's just, it's hard to do that. It's hard to move a room. I like the way you put that, or change a room. Um, It's not something that's really easy to do with little squiggles on a page, you know? And so so to to expect to be moved every time, I think, is asking too much. I think it's asking too much. I I view it a little like, you know, changing the dial on a radio. People get so uh, caught up in, well, you know, maybe someone, maybe uh, somebody can explain, Helen Vendler can probably help me appreciate this bullshit. Just change the damn dial. I mean, we should, you know, we used to be much more relaxed around poetry when there was more of it around us in schools and culture. And it's like, we should be secure. like what Emerson called kids in the orchestra, throwing tomato, <laughs> I don't like this play. We should be like kids in the orchestra. We should just, uh, the, the orchestra part of the audience anyway, uh, which was once like, you know, where the rabble were and the balcony was where was where the important people were. And we should have that kind of security of just saying, no, nah, I don't like this song. I don't have to analyze why I don't like this AM radio song. You just change the dial. When you do like it, you know how to turn up the volume. I, I, I would want readers to have that kind of security. Mm-hmm. They change the dial from me, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, uh... when a poem captures a room, there is no doubt. There is no doubt. It's kind of like that quality that Robert Piercing talks about in Zen and the Art. There is such a thing as as being captured, you know, and at that moment, you lose track of who wrote it, who's reading, who's listening, because you're all in it. Mm-hmm. Those are those kinds of poems that, you know, you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can feel it too as you're reading or in the audience, either one. I mean, you can you can feel when it's not working too, you know. And and sometimes that depends on the audience, the dynamic of what you're reading at the at the time. Um, but there's a sense of everybody sort of. I think the collective unconscious is is merging. You know, it's it's like. Um, the whole room is sort of one entity for a brief moment in time in the same way it is for like a rock concert or something, but everybody's like hanging on every word. And there's that sense of just that anticipation of like, you know, every sound is important all of a sudden and every, all the space between the sounds are important. And then that, you know, that, then that magic spell kind of goes away when the poem's over. It's a fascinating thing. The the one thing I really miss from doing a regular reading series is to seeing, you know, when, when, and, and how that would emerge and how many times it might, you know, it might be one time the whole day or it might be a few times and and those magical moments are just so special yeah well i've really raised the bar because now it's like (laughs) you know i mean this is so ready to suck whatever i read next (laughs) but don't you ever call you say something like um you know something about um any you know if you're if you're not willing to suck then you shouldn't write or something like that don't you say something like that (laughs) yeah the uh the permission to suck is also the permission to be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, because it's going to be that open and loose initially, anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, let's hear uh, the next poem up, uh, Bowie. Let's Uh-oh. see if we can, <laughs> we can live up to the expectations. <laughs> this might suck. <laughs> 
There's a poem called Bowie, and it's also from that Rattle um, chapbook uh, in America. It was such a fun chapbook to publish. I was, was really grateful to Rattle. <clears throat> uh, this I wrote this probably within a week after his death. Um, it doesn't always go this way, but this just came right out, I guess. Bowie. The first time I saw David Bowie, it was a man who took me to a cinema in Huntington, 12 miles from our town, where they were showing Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, the concert film with backstage footage of Bowie during costume changes, talking with friends he obviously loved. He was young, with milky skin, as excited about the show as his audience, no matter how garish the makeup, how spiky the hair, he was, that is, an ordinary person saying, wow, isn't this a blast? Saying what I would say. Soon, he'd go back on stage in another skin-tight outfit. The crowd would spend half a song wondering where his dick was before surrendering again, singing along to that big voice as crisp and thrilling as sanity. He was so full of plain goodness, yet also a space alien, truly fierce, a little grotesque, though I knew he was nothing to be afraid of, for I was Ziggy Stardust too. Soon I'd go away to college, putting distance between me and the man who drove me to see Bowie. For a while, he wrote me letters mentioning other beautiful men. Richard Gere was on Broadway playing a gay man in a concentration camp. The Nazis made him wear a pink triangle. And perhaps, his letter suggested, I might want to try on that triangle too. Did I tell you he was my 12th grade English teacher? His understanding of metaphor was quite limited. Sorry, it was quite limited but I'm glad I at least got to Bowie, who was so far beyond gay or strayed, a creature so wildly human, there was no word for him yet, which is why he needed another planet to be from, a planet I needed to find. Yeah, and that was Bowie from In America, uh, just a brilliant chapbook by Diana Getch. Um, and the, in America, it's transitioning in America, really, is what the topic is, which is the, it's sort of interesting reading the memoir, uh, This Body I Wore, because it's almost like the first section of the memoir is like the prose, even though there's so much poetry and music in the way you write. Um, it's sort of like prose expansions of a lot of what goes on in the chapbook, too. Um, so it's a fascinating read for that. And then it, it goes deeper into the um, into the issues. Why um, why did you want to write a memoir? And, and what was the difference between writing about these topics in a, in a poetry form versus in prose for a, for a wider audience? I think you might assume. Yeah, that's that a good question. I think the difference for me was um, I initially wanted to just let go of poetry completely. I wanted to write a memoir with zero poems in it. That was my opening assumption. I'm not going to do one of these things where I paste together a bunch of Facebook, um, you know, posts or the scrapbook memoir that we see with celebrity, you know, this kind of, I wanted this to really be an act of writing and, you know, do narrative narratively. And um, so that was the initial 
impulse. But, you know, then lo and behold, I was, you know, I had been through certain experiences that were less fictive in the poems that I, I said, okay, one entire chapter was basically me ransacking a major poem, uh, The Fabric Factory, but I still needed to transform it. So it worked, you know, in, um, in the panels of, of, of the narrative. Um, you know, mostly I wanted to write it. Um, it's, it's a similar thing I do w when I set out to write certain poems. There's a kind of aesthetic challenge. You know, the bank robbery of the memoir was how can I write about a time for which there was no language? And how can I do it without overlaying our words now? Because that's not what the experience is. Mm -hmm. You know, it was an experience of, of having no language and of stumbling. And so I wanted to embody that. And what does that look like? I mean, I've never really read that kind of treatment of, you know, let's say a trans kid, you know, in 1980, you know, who's, who's 17 years old. I've never seen that, you know, phenomenologically, mm -hmm. you know, really cap the texture of reality to that person, you know, who doesn't have words for this. Um, yeah, I've got this poem called Hate Crime, which was the reverse. I took an episode from the, the memoir and I, I actually expanded it afterwards in a poem because I wanted to say more about that. And the only time the word hate crime appeared was in the title of the poem Hate Crime mm -hmm. because we didn't know what it was. There was, no, there was no hated group that people could name for me, but they sensed something, you know, and I these things happened to me, this kind of bullying that had a different kind of texture than other kinds of bullying. It had the hate crime feeling about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was the aesthetic challenge for me is to try to, to try to capture that. Um, um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but it's, it's such an interesting thing to point out. I mean, the 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 ability to name and articulate something accurately you know is so there's so much like mental burden that's removed once you have that you know and, and it's it's i mean it really words are sort of shorthands for all these other things so we can make more and more complicated thoughts and experiences you know and so not having words for certain things and it's kind of what poets are doing that's like the job of poetry is to find ways to name certain experiences you know just broadly you know calling it from the sort of the chaos of unnamed things into the sort of the lexicon of what can be named is sort of the job of a poet and so it's really interesting to hear that uh, from the perspective of the book um, and I, I, what I asked about was the, the difference in the prose and the poetry, though. Did you find that you were changing the way you wrote to try to reach a wider audience because you can for, for um, prose? And, and did you reach the wider audience? How, is, how did the book, you know, how's the book sales doing? And um, is, is it something that do you find that that, um, you know, because I think poets a lot of times are jealous of prose writers, that they get a lot more publicity and, and more yeah. reviews and things like that. Do you find that to be the case, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, it's, a, it's a ton more publicity, you know, than, than a poetry book. Uh, but in terms of the sales, uh, it's nowhere close to, you know, threatening any bestseller list or anything like that. You never know how it's going to go. You never know if it catches fire, um, you know, or, you know, just gets left behind. But I, I get regular uh, correspondence from people 
mm-hmm. all the time. And a lot of it is just deeply moving. Um, and then all kinds of people, you know, families of trans people, people who don't know anything about trans people. And then, you know, late transitioners, which is another aspect of this reality I wanted to capture is what it is to be a late transitioner versus an early trans, you know, they divide us into so many categories. That's the only one actually that I think um, has any kind of gravity for me is people who transition late, who couldn't see what they, who, who, who couldn't unearth what they were versus people who can't conceal what they are, who transition early, get thrown out of houses often and families and churches and schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in terms of the writing itself, I kind of had the same approach, Tim. I, I just wanted to write as well as I could. It just happened to be in paragraphs. And I definitely didn't have the stamina, the way I work poems to work this prose, because it's just, too, you know, 87,000 words. It's just like, you better pace this. And I would get physically tired, exhausted, Mm-hmm. you know, after a certain number of words per day, whereas a poem, I don't know what it is, a poem, I could, I could write a hundred drafts and lose a lot of sleep with the memoir. There was a weight to it. I just became stupid after, you know, at a certain point each day, I actually worried I was having like cognitive difficulty, but then I'd wake up the next day and I'd be smarter again. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, there is a weight to words, like writing an essay or a little article for the newspaper or whatever. So much more where poetry is sort of exhilarating in a way. I mean, it's sort of awakening a certain sense. And it seems to me prose, it just maybe for me personally, but it's a tiring. It feels more like work, actually. <laughs> Whereas we talked about play before and poetry is so much play that it never feels like work to me. Um, well, I think, I think we should, uh, keep going with poems because we want to make sure we get to all the ones we wanted to share. So next, uh, next up was a reusable bag. Let's read that next. Oh, okay. Reusable bag. And are people going to type in questions? I want, I, I only want hard questions. I want somebody to, you <laughs> well, know. That is, that's a good, that's a good uh, note. I should say this is about the time I should say, if anybody has any questions for Dana, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass them along. I don't know how to get to the questions on uh, X. So you can't, if you're watching on X, you can't leave questions there, even though I think that there's a comment thing, but I have no idea how to see it. I could not find it. Um, but anyway, but if you have any questions, and, and Dana wants the hard stuff, so uh, don't, hold, don't hold back. No easy. I'll dismiss these easy ones. <laughs> yeah, so leave a question for Dana. Yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, let's hear, uh, let's hear Reusable Bag. Well, this is a world premiere. Reusable Bag is my newest poem, and um, maybe that's all I'll say for now. <clears throat> when I saw the woman on the sidewalk, on her knees corralling her spilled groceries. I reached for the reusable bag I keep in my pocketbook, dropped it beside her and kept walking. If you think I'm some Zen practitioner who gets off on acts without remainder, I'm not. I know by now there are no such acts, that regret is more universal than emptiness. I also know the woman Sorry for not saying that sooner. I was busy saying other things. We met on a dating website during the pandemic and discovered we live on the same block. We never dated, but we tried being friends. Though each time we got together, she did about 90% of the talking, never asking questions about me. There's more to the story, but she's not here to tell her 90% of it. 
It was only a matter of time until we'd run into each other again. And this was as good a way as any. There's something, I don't know, cleansing about seeing someone you know crouched in public over a broken jar of mayonnaise beside the Pop-Tarts and a gritty potato, something that might cause you to reach for a reusable bag and drop it like a piece of litter. The bag was one of several weird gifts bestowed on me by a woman upstate whose generosity I could never understand. She was married, powerful in her town, and liked telling me about scandals and rumors, mostly involving her, though never the actual story. I made the mistake of complimenting her green purse, and she'd emptied it, insisted I take it, wouldn't take no for an answer. I wish I hadn't taken so long to realize her gifts weren't gifts. I never used the purse, though the bag came in handy when New York banned plastic in grocery stores, which now charge for paper bags, which break. This reusable bag was strong, made of parachute-like fabric that folded up small. I have become fond of it, despite its origin. So if you think I dropped it to solve some kind of karmic equation, passing the bag from user to user, you can look for that in another poem. Life comes too fast for our principles, like someone you recognize and don't want to talk to, like groceries strewn over the sidewalk. Whether or not she recognized my departing back, I have no idea. And who knows if she even used the bag or uses it still or what she makes of it. And that was a reusable bag uh, by Dana Getch, the newest poem uh, we're going to be sharing today. Um, and you mentioned um, Buddhism there. And there's, there's so much in common to me. You mentioned uh, Robert Persig too already. There's so much in common, you know, between Buddhism, you know, meditative practice like that and poetry. Um, and two, there's a chapter in the, in the memoir about you know, having a sort of identity revelation while at a, a, an isolated retreat. Um, up way high in a cabin. Um, and, and that kind of revelation is so much in tune with what poetry does, too. How do you feel what the relationship is between your Zen practice and your poetry practice? Are they sort of overlapping Venn diagrams, or are they all the same thing, or nothing in common? Um, I, I consider poetry as Dharma without Sanskrit. <laughs> I think it's above because it doesn't need these fancy terms, you know, and nothing could be more denatured and bodiless than the Sanskrit terminology of Buddhism translated into English mm -hmm. or Tibetan terms translated into English. I'm sure they have body, you know, in their native language. They probably do. But some of these chants are absolutely devoid of poetry. Uh, in, in English, and I don't mind saying it because we care so much about music. Um, but, but you know, at its base, I don't see any daylight between the two. I mean, you're getting rid of the ego. You're getting rid of self-expression on the way to something higher. You know, something that imaginations far into your own could also be moved by. Mm -hmm. You really have to get the ego out of the way to do that. Um, 
So yeah, the, the, the practices I were doing was doing was actually Tibetan practices, these, these tantric energy practices. And in those practices, there's a lot to do with visualization. So I always felt that um, having, being an artist, being a poet um, was a gateway for me into the, the visualization and the energy practices of, of, the, uh, of the tantric level. Um, and they always felt, I always felt very at home because they give you these elaborate visualizations that are so elaborate, you, you can't think mm. and visualize at the same time. It's too much, you know, so you, you're putting the mind out of business. And when you bury yourself into a metaphor, into a poem, you, you also want that as well. You want, you want no sense of self at a certain point. Um, you know, you just dissolve into the page and, you know, you, you look up and it's nighttime and what happened? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the two, not only do they go along, I, I just think they're identical. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the same thing. Um, and so we have a couple of great questions too. Um, and let's, let's start with that. Um, so Amy Miller says, uh, love you work, Diana. Uh, when writing poetry, do you have a particular person in mind that you're writing for? Can you imagine seeing the ideal reader? Is that a, because I always say, you know, in, in the critique of the week that we do on the Fridays, um, that it's really important to have a sense that the, the poem could be spoken by someone to someone else in your mind as you're writing, because otherwise things get so muddled and, and there's a, a sense that the voice emerges from that, like the intimacy of an actual somebody saying something to somebody, and it can be as wild as you want, but it seems yeah. like there has to be some aspect of that to it in order to get to that that state that we were talking about where, you know, you're so connected that you're changing the room. Um, that authenticity comes from an authentic voice in a way. So, so do you have that in mind? Do you, do you have a specific reader or, uh, or an ideal reader? I think, you know, it's a good question. I, I actually don't have a specific, you know, narrowed down ideal reader, but I think I've evolved a sense of an every reader, of an every person, somebody who would go to a Springsteen concert, you know, somebody, because you know, I want that wide an audience, um, somebody who, you know, might love or might not love poetry. I mean, there's a moment in Reusable Bag where there's an allusion to the William Carlos Williams poem. You know, so much depends on a red wheel, you know, here, here, you know, but beside um, what, what was that? What was that line beside the uh, white um, chickens? <laughs> well, that was the Williams line. But I had uh, oh. you know, someone, you know, crouching above a broken jar of mayonnaise beside the pop tart. That beside is right out of William Carlos Williams. But a reader doesn't have to know that, nor would I want to require a reader to know anything in particular you know, the poem has to, you know, be able to include everyone. If somebody has to go and read some kind of OED or find out what an OED is in order to read my poem, I think that's ridiculous. These, these poets who say, I want the reader to have to work for, oh, really, really, more beer for me. <laughs> that is ridiculous. That is the most egotistical. Um, so... I, I just uh, the sense of an every person um, because of how many different kinds of things I like anyway, you know, and I try to um, I try to have a wide definition of what a poem could be and, and who it could who it could bring in. Um, so I don't I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer, but, but I think the, the other thing that happens, though, after a while, you know, you do this for a while, you do get more accuracy in terms of 
you know, the, the act of editing, which 90% of it is just putting yourself in the shoes of a reader. Mm-hmm. And people in the beginning whose poems are so opaque to them, part of the reason why is they don't yet know how to put themselves in the shoes of a reader because it's so overwhelming to first put on the shoes of a writer. And I get that. I understand that. You know, somebody else has to point out that there's spinach between your teeth, you know, and then you go to the restroom and you say, oh, yeah, they're right. The spinach between my teeth and I have to edit the spinach out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but but I think you get you just get better. It's never too late to suck, but you get better and better at sensing where you're going to lose a reader mm-hmm. and taking what Virginia Woolf calls um, a cold blooded read of yourself, of your poem, and seeing if it, um, you know, if it stands up to a cold-blooded read. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to the, the Buddhist, because I, I lost my train of thought reading questions, and I want to ask about a follow-up about that. Um, you know, since so much, you know, there, there's a revelation to poetry. Um, you know, there's this sense of self-discovery on that journey so often, and it's a, the dissolution of self, or that thing that you think is yourself, that lets that truth come through. Um, and, and I think that's what, what has, why there's such, so much in common between the two practices, um, where they're really the same thing. There's different ways of doing the same thing, which is to get rid of that sense of self and then let the other truth that are deeper emerge. Um, do, you, do you find that it's easy to get into that state when you're writing? Or, or do you find it difficult? And, and if so, are there techniques that you use to, to make it so you can enter that state where you're not self-conscious? Yeah, there are actually. Um, I every writer I know about who's had any kind of success and attainment has some routine where they get into, you know, some state of mind, and it, it often has to do with outer circumstances. You know, I'll I'll do a lot of first drafts in coffee shops, for example. You know, because composing is harder for me than revising. Everyone has to do both. And everyone usually loves one way more than the other. Mm-hmm. And I love, I could, I could revise anywhere. But to compose, I need a kind of an elevated sense of where I am, which, so I make a journey often. Um, I often tell people, though, you know, people who study with me, um, don't make a big deal out of your idiosyncrasies, but obey them. Obey them. Don't fetishize them because they may change. But pay attention to, to, to what you need. You know, maybe you have more courage in the morning. A lot of writers write in the morning, but not always. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I make sure, you know, I have a, a routine that feels like it's going to work. And again, you can always suck. Um, but, but I try to do that. You know, if, if, if I'm too tired, I don't even, I don't even attempt it. I don't, I don't feel right. It's not you know um so you know there's some fine-tuning that goes on physically you know with that kind of thing um but you know i just pay attention to when you know and it's the same with meditation i mean if you're so tired you can't meditate then you know get your sleep mm-hmm. you know yeah uh well let's hear another poem and the next poem sort of has a you know cohen like quality maybe the warm dark uh, do you want to read that next yeah yeah this is also a fairly recent poem um The warm dark. When my mother let me know she didn't want me, I was tiny enough to remember the warm dark. I wanted to go back there, but I was already here. 
So I'd have to take the long way through this terrible life. Yeah, there's the warm dark, another new poem from Diana. Um, let's see. So there, another question. This is an easy one, uh, if I can find it again. Um, yeah, Jerry Stephenson says, is there a meaning to life or just the perfect poem? <laughs> so there you go. Solve it for us all right now, Diana. The meaning of life is to live. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's to live. It's a verb. Life is a verb. It's like what they say about love. Love is a verb. Don't you know? Somebody says they love you. Yeah, really? Let's let's see. <laughs> it's 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 a verb. You you live. I was uh, I had a reunion lunch with an old friend of mine. Actually, it's the character of uh, Bridget Faulkner. I named her in in the memoir. I had a crush on a mad crush on her for a long time, like from high school on. I was so embarrassed to even show her the memoir, but I had to show it to her to make sure she's not that embarrassed herself. And so we had lunch together. We, we, we'd become friends and a wonderful person. And she's very much a nature person, a recycler, teaches recycling, a do-gooder, you know, wants to, you know, take care of the planet. And she's saying, you know, why are we here? Why did I just go on this great vacation? What does that mean? Shouldn't I have been doing this other thing? And, and we kind of arrived at something together, a little like the meaning of life or what we're here for. And I think it's, it was just pretty simple, but it worked for us that we're here to, um, we're here to help others. We're here to enjoy life and to help others enjoy life. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to enjoy life, but we have to also, we ought to help others in, enjoy their lives. Yeah. And in fact, you know, that impactful guru, Chogyam Trumpa. Um, there was a student of his uh, named Blair who once told me he was a close student of Chogyam Trumpas. He used to have interviews once a month with, with this guru that I've never met. And he used to say the hardest teaching that Rinpoche, Chogyam Trumpa, ever gave him was enjoy your life. You know, he knew all these high practices. He knew how to, you know, sit on the, uh, uh, on the cushion like he was stapled there and sit through fire but then somebody says enjoy your life well how do we do that mm -hmm. yeah how do we do that without fake joy or addiction or you know other things mm -hmm. yeah and if there were an easy answer there wouldn't be you know poems and and zen retreats <laughs> you know if, if it were easy to do so um yeah, uh, let's. There, we're coming up on time, but I want to get to the last two poems. So let's read the next one, then we'll do a little bit more questioning, and then uh, we'll do the one after that. So, miracle is the one next. Okay, miracle. Um, the closest I've come to a miracle was Lisa Macy knocking on my door at midnight, saying, "I don't want to sleep alone." I guess I didn't pay attention to the default in that she didn't say she wanted to sleep with me, but perhaps this made it all the more miraculous. I, of all people, happened to be behind a door knocked on by Lisa Macy. Three months before, she let me kiss her in her car and afterwards swore she felt nothing, which I knew was true because I felt her feel nothing. It was like kissing a stuffed doll, a beautiful stuffed doll, about five foot three with the most magnificent breasts you could ever dream up. Breasts she kept covered with her hands when she took off her nightshirt 
and got into my bed. She kept them covered, even as she kissed me, now hungrily. We read about such women in Anna Karenina and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. She lived with her alcoholic parents in a small dilapidated house in Dogtown, St. Louis. All winter, I asked her to stay with me in my apartment near a freight yard at some nameless college in Oklahoma, where I was a poet in captivity. She finally called in May. Her car was packed. She was heading west and wondered if she could stop for the night. Sure, I said, baffled. By then, I'd given up hope, something I think she sensed and why she called. I fed her, gave her the guest room, gave her linen, bid her good night, a perfect gentleman like Cary Grant in a black and white film that switched to Technicolor with a knock on a door that pulled me out of a deep sleep into the waking dream of Lisa Macy. Was there ever a miracle that didn't emerge from a fog or dust storm, the sound of a freight train on a sweltering night, a woman with hands to knock, but not to love. They were too busy hiding the cuts and scars across her mutilated chest, which I swear didn't matter, not until she began doing to me what life had done to her. Lisa Macy, St. Lisa from St. Louis, why couldn't you have been stitched just a little tighter, enough to see yourself as worthy of miracles? Why couldn't I have been yours? And that was Miracles from Dana Getch uh, from the book In America, which, of course, you can find at rattle.com. So um, pick up a copy there or at Diana Getch's website. There's a question from, let me find it again, Mark Grinier um, says, is getting at what's important in art what makes it both dangerous and important to the health of society? And that word danger, it seems like such an important thing, too. I mean, what you're writing about in, in America and this body I wore um, is a sort of a perilous time within your life, um, you know, in, in the 80s and in that, in that subculture. Um, and, and then, you know, painting that in such a profound and engrossing way, there's sort of a, a, a danger in that, too. Um, how does that play? Because we already talked about the playfulness. Uh, but but is, the, is danger something important? Is there sort of a high wire act, maybe, to what we're all doing with poetry and, and writing in general? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many things to write poems about, and I love them all, actually, you know. Um, but but one of the most important is is danger, to, to go in the places. Hemingway says, write hard about, you know, what hurts. I mean, we're all witness to these horrors, but the poets are the ones that actually really look. They write about it, and there is a kind of a courage, um, you know, to staying in there, you know, you give a descriptive exercise to a bunch of people, just put an object, you know, some kind of broccoli floret on a, on a table, and you tell students to do nothing but describe it. No metaphor, no idea, no politics, no feeling, just physical description. They can't do it. Very few can do it. And you realize it really takes courage to describe anything to actually see reality in an unvarnished way, or at least to try. Um, and I think this is especially helpful 
you know, for the hard things, uh, you know, trauma will distort, you know, a poem like The Warm Dark, you know, I wanted to write a poem from the point of view of an infant who knows with 100% certainty they're not wanted, knowing that there's tons of infants like this, we see it, but nobody remembers that. You know, I mean, that's a black hole. The first, you know, without language, there is no narrative memory. Mm -hmm. So we've all come over this event horizon at age three or four onto a black box stage and, you know, we're instantly born. Well, we're not. We just don't have access to the most formative part of our life. What if I wrote that and, you know, that poem, The Warm Dark, you called it koan-like. It doesn't have a single complex noun or verb. I can't even say the word womb, you know, and of course this kid has no language at all, but better to say the warm dark than anything else. It's even, you know, it, it's more evocative anyway than womb because it could be anything they want to go back to. And what's it like to have some kind of sense or memory of that when this is happening to you, mm -hmm. you know, and then what's your plan for life when you have this kind of caregiver and no better instrument than poetry to imagine, visualize, witness, you know, the ultimate danger. There will never be a march for uh, children who are abused. Mm -hmm. There'll never be a march for it because it cuts across every demographic. And the victims don't know they're victims for a long, long time. And they stay victims for an even longer time. And it's a hard thing to, but the poets are here. If that can't be a subject of poetry, you know, where are we? Mm -hmm. And from that perspective of danger and maybe through the Buddhist lens too, I mean, you've had, you know, you've grown up to experience such a dramatic shift in, in just public consciousness and, and interaction, um, you know, from going in the early days where there weren't even words uh, to describe it, like you said, to now becoming more and more um, accepted and understood and, and having a community, you know, built up around being a trans woman. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, um, you know, saying that life, the meaning of life is to live and having so much struggle allows you to live more fully in a way. Do, do you, do you um, sort of as a Zen practitioner appreciate the struggle? Like, would you choose to have gone through such difficult times? Or, or would you uh, rather have been born now where it's easier, an easier thing to do? You know, lately I think a lot about James Baldwin's teaching of legacy versus birthright. You know, legacy is you have no control. You're born into a certain demographic. You know, in, in his case, here's a gay black, impoverished person, um, you know, in a certain kind of family. He couldn't control the fact that he had a bully for a stepfather, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to address this because it's going to address you. Uh, but then at a certain point, you know, you, you, you also need to address this sense of birthright by which Baldwin thought of your uniqueness, the gift you have, the business you've come here on and the joy that is your right, because it's everybody's right to enjoy life, that's very different from legacy. It's very different from, you know, riding herd over the, over the trouble. This is something quite unique to each person that everyone has a right to celebrate. And I think, you know, being trans, it just makes it harder to get to um, birthright, mm -hmm. you know, because you're, you're dealing with, with, with legacy. But then again, 
you know, the only difference I think with privilege is people who have, re and I have certain relative privileges, God knows I'm ridiculously educated. This is, you know, white, it's, there's a lot of privilege here. But, but with relative privilege, they just simply get to be numb to their suffering. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know what their deal is, <laughs> you know? um, but you know, I, I mean, there's so much regret that's kind of marbled into the experience of so many trans people. You know, one of the things I say in the memoir is I've yet to meet a single trans person of any age that does not regret uh, not transitioning sooner. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of, you know, living death when you're not being fundamentally who you are. Um, and so there's a kind of a regret that we manage and a sadness and there's other kinds of regret too with other people, but um, I don't know. Uh, you just get to be you. And, you know, there's this initial elation, you know, because of the change in that you get to be you. I mean, I, I get to be myself. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards you're just restored to what Freud called ordinary misery. <laughs> <laughs> you, just get to, you get to have a bad day and maybe it's not because of your demographic. It's just a bad fucking day for, for, for the same reason anyone else is having a bad day. Yeah. You know? Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion, really depthful, and I appreciate it, Diana. Uh, but we're sort of past time, but if you don't mind, let's read the last. Uh, you want to read a section from Nameless Boy, which was a great way to close out the show. I think you said eight and nine. Sections eight and nine. It's a little bit long, but is that okay? Or, yeah, I think uh, that'd be great as long as you have time and don't mind. No, if, if you got the time, I got the time. And um, do, you, uh, do you remember what, because you submitted this for the Rattle Poetry Prize and you had to change your name. Was it, I'm trying to remember what the name you changed it to, because you changed it from um, uh, Douglas Getch to Blum or something like that. Um, I was trying to remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's one of the poems that I just, you know, keep my dead name and, you know, whatever. I mean, my dead name's on every book except for two. Um, yeah, th this this was a return to music. This was a, a, a just, just a lot of joy, too much coffee one morning. Uh, I wrote this uh, very quickly, actually. It's my longest poem. So sections eight and nine are just a sound bath, and sections eight is just, just a bunch of racehorse names. Two of them I make up. The rest are actual racehorse names. I researched this. <laughs> and section nine is, is just place. It's the act of naming, which we said before had so much to do with poetry itself. You can't, for names, beat a racehorse. <clears throat> Foolish pleasure, spectacular bid, funny side, cardigan bay, carry back, skip in place, woulda, shoulda, coulda, Stevie Wonder Boy. What is it about the paddock or the track that turns breeders and owners into poets, if only for a word or two between cigar chomps? Or do they just obey what their pigtailed daughters whisper in their ears? Oh, daddy, please call him Firestreak, Spiderback, Rocket Wrangler, Ali Sheba, Mistral Sky, Whirlaway. Or maybe it's their julep-sipping silk dress mistresses who coax the names from them. Lady Van Gogh, Royal Infatuation, Casual Lies, Tom Fool, Party Jones, Blonde in a Motel, You Late Mate, um, Who's Leaving Who, You Don't Know Jack. But the horses have to know there's hope 
built into their names when they round the final turn into the home stretch. A hundred thousand voices screaming, go man, go, holy bull, buck passer, come on, Johnny Dial, down the brick, don't you dare, do good, look busy, expect a miracle, neck and neck with slow Joe Doyle, but Secretariat is moving like a tremendous machine. And here's section nine. Are we ever more consumed with a word than when we first approach a city such as London, Lisbon, Dublin, Geneva, Jakarta, Vienna? Did the founders know the poetic freight those syllables would carry when they arrived on horseback or the deck of a ship, exhausted and dreamy, to lift a name from the mist in their brain for the vista they beheld? Casablanca, Jerusalem, Shanghai, Nairobi, Istanbul, Timbuktu. Even American cities are loaded with birdsong. Chicago, Atlanta, Winston-Salem, Boston, Baltimore, Albuquerque. Can you think of a better sound than Cincinnati, unless it's Philadelphia? The hard-edged Akron, Trenton, Duluth, Detroit, Vegas, take their rightful places, along with the comic Milwaukee, Sheboygan, Boise, Walla Walla, Hoboken, Weehawken, and the irrepressible Cleveland, a word to add humor to any sentence, as in, I got a wife in Cleveland and she hates my guts. And yet, driving Pennsylvania, who isn't dumbstruck by the unsavory names of its towns, Blandon, Blozerville, Scotrum, Scranton, as if some dark cloud of nomenclature had descended on Hecktown, Buttstown, Brunnerville, Loyal Sock, Lickdale. Could this have been the work of the Amish, taking refuge linguistically as they do in clothing, drab and ugly, shunning all worldly interest in Lurgan, Blaine, Mertzville, Blancheland, renaming the new land for a gnawing sadness they hoped to dispel in Snedekerville? Is there any doubt the citizens of Intercourse, Blue Ball, Latitz, Bird in Hand, have some explaining to do to their children at inappropriate ages? Growing up in Long Island, I rode my Schwinn on the spiritless grid of suburban dystopia within the confines of the M section, past stick trees newly planted in farmland with no great oak or elm or beech to lend a street a landmark, no storied maples on maple shade lane, no hill on moss hill place, no millstream lane running flat and dry into Millbrook, Millbrook Drive. That's what happens when you move people into potato fields and name roads as fast as you can lay down asphalt in towns that sound like soap opera locales, valley stream, lake grove, floral park. Nobody was baptized in wading river. I never threw a stone in Stony Brook. Yeah, I love that last line too. Great reading, and I, just the sounds of that are so beautiful, uh, so fun. Uh, that was a nameless boy, which you can find, of course, just go to rattle.com, put nameless boy in the search bar, and you'll find it can read, or I think listen. Is it is audio there? Uh, no, no audio, but you can listen, you can read. It's a long poem to read. I was only a finalist. It didn't win. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, wonderful poem, and it, it ties into um, one of the things I was thinking about, but um, the, the thing that you do with the... Um, 
the untaken band names. It's so fun on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I never you know. knew. I was too shy maybe to ask why you're doing that, but it's so fun to read through. And everyone's having so much fun, you know, talking about them too in the comments. Um, but but you can sort of see the the playfulness in, in coming I up with those names. I can give you a quick too. answer if, if you have a second. Yeah, yeah. I did it to stay in shape while I wrote prose. Hmm. I know, as I say in this poem, naming makes you a poet. And so it's hard to name an untaken band name that's going to work. I just thought of a name, Sweet Dime, <laughs> which is what they say with a good pass in the NBA. It's a sweet dime. It's like I could see a band, Sweet Dime. It kept me in a poetic imagination while I was writing the memoir. That's 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 what I was up to. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's so, it's so fun to, to read. So follow, everybody follow Diana on uh, social media, and you get that, those posts occasionally, which are a lot of fun. Diana, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been great talking to you, uh, really form, informative and fun. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me, and thanks, everyone, for coming. And, you know, long live Rattle. How wonderful to be here. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was Diana Getch. You can find uh, her book and all of her work at dianagetch.com. That's Diana and then G-O-E-T-S-C-H dot com. Dianagetch.com. You've been listening to portions of Rattlecast number 229. For the full episode, the prompt lines, and more, visit youtube.com slash rattlepoetry. Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. 